Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Titus O'Reilly here. And just before we get started, I've mentioned it before, but uh, just in case you haven't heard, I'm back in 2024 with a live show, Sports, The Unauthorized History. Now, I haven't done a live show since, I think, 2021 due to some recent unpleasantness regarding global pandemics, which we all enjoyed immensely. So I'm super excited to be bringing this. We're going to explore everything from the ancient Greeks all the way up to David Warner, two uh, groups you often put together. If you want to get in, get in quick because these are selling out. I will put the link in the show notes and I am going to be bringing it around the country as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. So it's Tyus O'Reilly, Sport, The Unauthorised History. It's Sports Bizarre. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangers. Wow. This is outrageous. It's for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports bizarre. You know, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah. Uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperada. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. Yeah. This <laughs> is the Sports Bazaar Summer Edition. Do I miss that meeting? You miss a lot of meetings. <laughs> With Titus O'Reilly. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Sports Bazaar. Titus O'Reilly here with you again. And this week, we've got one from the archive. It's Christmas time. This is something where you want to reflect on one of the great Australian stories of all time. It is, of course, Young Griffo. Uh, If you haven't heard this before, you're in for a real treat. If you have, well, it's worth it again, because this particular story of Young Griffo, the boxer, is the one that we get told, Mick and I, more than anything else, you guys need to make this into a movie. This might be one of the greatest Australian stories of all time, not just sport, I'm talking Australian history. Forget Ned Kelly, Young Griffo's story is more epic and crazy and just out there than anything I've almost ever heard. So sit back, I hope you enjoy this one. If you've heard it before, you're going to enjoy it again because it is just dense with information and the fact this guy lived this life and is so little known in this country is a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. But if you listen to this, we're fixing this one person at a time. Young Griffo. A lot of people haven't heard of him, but boxing people sort of know. But I wanted to start by just reading you (laughs) a little segment. I'm so excited. This is from a book I wrote and I had a little bit about him in it and I just thought this sets a scene of what's coming. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's going to get stranger and stranger. Get comfy, everyone. So a man sat at the bar in Young Mitchell's Saloon in San Francisco, nursing what was certainly not his first drink of the evening. (laughs) Short and carrying a bit of weight around the middle, he wasn't much to look at. No one would have given him a second glance, just another drunk at the bar. As he sat there, a man entered the saloon and made a beeline for him. The bartender, sensing danger, warned the man at the bar, Here he is now, Griff, that fellow who is looking for you. (laughs) The normal reaction being told someone's about to confront you in a bar is to at least turn around, but Griff seemed not at all interested. Sensing some action, the crowd parted before the newcomer and as he got within striking distance of Griff, he cocked his fist and swung with all his might, aiming for a king hit from behind. But Griff, who seemed to be oblivious, just moved his head slightly, causing the knockout blow to sail past harmlessly. 
Okay. The aggressor swung again and again, but the man kept ducking each punch, never turning around. <laughs> and instead watching his attacker in the giant mirror behind the bar. After a few minutes of this and not without a punch landed, the attacker slumped to the floor exhausted and said, you win, Griffo. I was going to knock your block off, but you haven't got one. I'm licked without being hit. The Australian man, Albert Griffiths, or young Griffo, who is known in <laughs> boxing circles, didn't even respond. He resumed drinking as if nothing had happened. Wow. So this is one of the greatest defensive boxers of all time, if not the greatest. Yes. So we're talking about a guy, Albert Griffiths was his name, and he was born on the 31st of March, 1871, probably. They didn't. <laughs> it's it's rumoured. Back then, your birthday wasn't really recorded. No, that's right. Too sensitively, so. There's no photo IDs. No, so for instance, he was buried in the Bronx and his gravestone there lists his birth date as 1880, which is nine <laughs> years later. Someone's just had a, they've rounded <laughs> yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah so yeah, straight yeah. away, like the nine, so, but we think about 1871 he was born. Oh. So what we do know is he's born in a place called Miller's Point in Sydney, which is next to a place called The Rocks. Okay. Now, how would you describe The Rocks to someone as it is now? The oh, tourist It's the Sydney Harbour. You can see the bridge. You go down, it's the oldest pub in Australia. You can see the Sydney, the Opera House, That's which right. many people know. It. So this is sort of the most famous part of Sydney for people who haven't yeah. been there. And so he grew there, but at the time this was like one of the roughest suburbs in well, Australia. Well, you told me the police would not even go Poli- in there. Police wouldn't go there. Wouldn't go it near was it. like So it was full of brothels. Pubs and opium dens. It's, what are we doing it's here? It's not as fun now. <laughs> <laughs> now it's, it was a simpler time. It was a simpler, more fun time. Um, so basically if you went there and you were just an ordinary person from outside the suburb, the chance of you being robbed or assaulted was incredibly high. And this is where Griffo, <laughs> young Griffo as he was known, was, his trade. was, was his born and grew up in, right? And straight away his mum died when he was very young. We don't know mm. the exact date but like under 10, you know. He's, and his dad, who is a wharfie, sent him to be raised by neighbours because back then men on their own didn't raise <laughs> kids. It was like... It wasn't great parenting. Yeah, it was like just send him to a neighbour. <laughs> they did a lot of that in these days. It was like the neighbours said yes. Wow. Okay, none of my neighbours would take a no. child that I know of. He then found, his dad found another wife and came back but... You know, young Albert Griffiths wasn't really someone who stayed at home a lot. His okay. dad wasn't really home a lot and he didn't really work well. He worked as a paper boy for the Sydney Morning Herald. He was an assistant to a tailor and then he helped out as a horse trainer. Quite the resume. Yeah, but you'd be surprised he wasn't really a hold down a steady job type. <laughs> he sort of, you know, he liked hanging out with his mates and in the rocks that meant joining one of the many street gangs okay. that yeah. that operated in the area. And back then the rocks, you can't imagine it now as a hot bed of gang crime, like it's a touristy place. But at the time, every little group of kids were basically a a street gang and not like a fun street gang, not like like a musical theatre street gang. Not Oliver Twisty (laughs) kind of stuff. These are like stab you and leave you dead in the rock sort of guys. (laughs) Gangs were called a push. So you had the Miller's Point push, the Argyle Cup push, the Glebe push, the Straw Hat push. Okay. So you sort of got a Peaky Blinders vibe. I'm seeing boaters. (laughs) That's right. It's like a street gang wearing boaters. One gang was called the 40 Thieves from Surrey Hills. There was the Gibbs Street mob. There was a Catholic gang called the Green Push. The Catholic gang? What were they doing? They, they were the, so all the Catholics formed the gang. Beat you up and then confess to it later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would read you the last rites as they belted you. Um, there was a Protestant one called the Orange Push and spoiler alert, the, the Catholic one and the Protestant one didn't like, didn't each, like other. each other. So they didn't Lord like each other. Enemies. So, you know, Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, the great 
poets. They wrote stories about these. The literary push, push if yeah, you like. That's right. Yeah. So they wrote things about all of this. So the most famous of these gangs, though, was one called The Rocks Push. Okay. So based in the rocks, the toughest suburb and the toughest gang, which makes sense. They were the big ones. They were the big one. They ran the suburb from 1870 until 1890s. And during that time, like we were talking earlier, the police wouldn't even go in mm-hmm. because if you did, yeah. that was it. Whenever they weren't robbing members of the public or assaulting police, <laughs> these members of the push would fight other gangs. Right, so just, that, just to keep their eye in. Just to, just, yeah, just, just to, to protect the their time. turf, all yeah. that sort of stuff, right? And the thing was they weren't just... How many in a gang? Like what was... Oh, it could be like 40, 40, you know. It could be like lots. It was yeah. like... Because like, it wasn't like high unemployment, not much to do. Right, a bit of spare time in their hands. Yeah, a bit of spare yeah, time. Rocks, no, yeah. no iPads back then, no PlayStations. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it was yeah, rough yeah. and willing, right? But they were quite hierarchical. These gangs were very well organised. And the way you became the leader of a gang back then... Yeah is you had to beat all the other members in bare-knuckle fighting. Old-fashioned one. So this meant that they also, between the gangs, often than having an all-in brawl, the two leaders would just fight each other to just settle like who can have this street or that street or all that sort of stuff. So the weird unintended consequence of this is this gang culture basically kick-started Australia's boxing history. There you go. Because it was like this, you know, sort of hotbed for developing fighting skills. Mm-hmm. And when you're bare knuckle fighting, you tend to get very good at defending yourself <laughs> and your reactions get very yeah. good. Don't get hit. So it was like a high performance centre before uh, you had a high right. performance centre. It's like an institute of sport. Yeah, it was amazing. So in 1871 when Albert Griffiths was meant to be born, there was another guy called Larry Foley. He was the leader of the Catholic Green Push <laughs> and he faced off with the leader of the Protestant Orange Push okay. and the fight lasted 71 rounds. What? Oh, these are organised. There's not a street corner. Yeah, this they're is actually, actually, no, they're on a, the street. They're illegal. There's 71 rounds. And they lasted 71 rounds. And the idea then is it only ended when the police arrived and broke it up. <laughs> There was no like, you know, concussion protocols. Oh, I've got to say, in in eighteen seventy one, they didn't care. It was like you fought until one guy just couldn't right. continue at all. Gotcha. So they just built each other for hours. On it's like seventy one mm. rounds isn't even the longest. And remember that one only stopped because the police showed up. Like it was going gangbusters <laughs> that was going to continue. <laughs> But Foley was such a gifted um, boxer, he made a, a small fortune fighting. Like he was just amazing. It was illegal at the time, but you could still make money. On this, they all bet. money changing hands. Yeah, the police were often in on it. Other times they yeah. weren't. It was all like. Was the- Is it like I know in, during the Second World War? Yeah, or round about those times, there would be a two-up game, and the police would break it up put them in jail, take yeah. them down to the cells where the game would continue <laughs> but the police would take a <laughs> yeah, cut. The so they're now managing the game. Well, so. Wherever you read horse racing, two-up, boxing, in any continent, the minute there's gambling, it is not long after that the police go, <laughs> we can't stop this, let's get in on it. Hell. It is amazing. Like There's, there's never cut. a case where the police go, hey, this is illegal, let's stop it. They always go, <laughs> I reckon we can, uh, yeah. you know, I reckon we can come get around to this. this. So Foley is this amazing fighter and uh, this Larry Foley, he's becoming the best bare-knuckle fighter in Australia. In 1871 he fought this London-born uh, guy called Abe Hicken who was the first unofficial boxing champion of Australia. London-born but out here. But out here, no thing. So the fight that they had was conducted, this is 1879, was on the Victoria. 
Victorian side of the Murray River. So mm. New South Wales and Victoria, two yep. most popular states in Australia, divided by a river. Yeah, it's like the Gaza Strip in <laughs> Australia that separates <laughs> Victoria and yeah. New South so Wales. It happens on the Victorian side of the Murray River. The yep. New South Wales police get word of this. So 20 New South Wales policemen rock up on their horses, but they're on the other side of the river. Oh, my God. So they're watching it, but they don't have jurisdiction to go in and get them. <laughs> so they have to watch this huge crowd shows up. And it, this one, Foley fights Hicken for 140 rounds. This is boggling my mind. Yeah, it I just don't keeps understand. going. How does that end? Weekend at Bernie's style and boxes <laughs> being... Eventually, Foley no in knocks towel. him out, finally. They, no one cared if he got belted in the head for hours on end back then. It was then. the style of the time. Yeah, there was no, there was no throwing <laughs> in the towel. There were no towels. It was like... And no ringside doctor here. It was literally until you couldn't box. Now, for this, Foley wins and he gets £1,000, which is an absolute... Fortune. Fortune at this time. And a reporter asked him, because there's reporters there and everything, even though it's legal, <laughs> he says, how do you feel? And Larry says, very, very happy. Yeah. And then the reporter goes and asks some of the punters who are betting on him and they'd all bet on Larry to win. Right. They said, how do you feel? And they said, as happy as Larry. And that's where the You're phrase, as Harry, happy as Larry, comes from. Very big Australian phrase but also used in other countries this now. This podcast is now... <laughs> Educational and informed. Are you serious? Yeah, so that's why. Happy as Larry. That, it's an iconic Australian phrase, and I know it's used in some other countries, which I was wow. looking at before this, that, you know, so as happy as Larry comes from that because they were as happy as he was because <laughs> they'd made the money. Now, the 20 New South Wales police across the river, hoping that they could arrest these guys at some point, <laughs> they watched on, unfortunately, as the crowd just disappeared into the right. Victorian bush. They couldn't arrest anyone. And the worst bit about it for the police... Australia's Most Wanted Man was watching and in the crowd at the boxing match, which was Ned Kelly, who oh, just robbed wow. the bank at Gelderie just six weeks earlier. Now, if you don't, not from Australia, Ned Kelly's our, he wore a metal helmet and Mick Jagger played him in a movie. Like It's, it's the only movie, historical movie we keep making. We've made it like eight, eight times. Eight times. You know, it's just so. You know Break him around. Bradman. There's only about three <laughs> yeah, Australians. Stars. We have like three. We don't things. have many, but Ned Kelly. And Ned Do the Kelly's cops know he's in the crowd. No, they don't oh, know, wow. and so they, and they can't cross the river because it's out of their jurisdiction. And he's like the most wanted man in Australia at the time, and he's watching this fight. So you have in this one fight, you have as happy as Larry, this iconic <laughs> Australian from, and you got Ned Kelly. So Foley comes back from this fight flush with cash, you know, a thousand pounds, which is an absolute fortune. fortune yeah. So he goes back to uh, Sydney. He retires, he buys a pub called the White Horse Hotel, George Street, which is the sort of main street main now. Street, Sydney, but, yeah. you know, because he's been the leader of the Catholic Green Push, yep. he says, my time as a gang leader is over. Okay. And my time as a boxer is over. I've done it but I will open up a gym out the back called the Iron Pot. <laughs> so he's opened his gym. And this gym becomes all Australia's early boxing champions, Come many that him. go on to an international level. And he's now known Foley as the father of Australian boxing. So literally a gang leader. So you could retire. It's not like today, like you go blood in, blood out. Yeah, they didn't you pull him back go, in. He made enough go, money. I'm done here. Yeah, I'm done. Like so, And then a 17-year-old by the name of Albert Griffiths walks into the Iron Pot. Oh, my God. And meets Larry. And Larry watches him and goes, this kid is a true boxing genius. So going back to Albert, before his 16th birthday, he becomes the leader of the Rocks Push, the toughest gang in Sydney 
and he's less than 16 and you've got to remember he wins it by beating everyone else at bare knuckle fighting within the gang. These were illegal but very well organised fights and they had prize money, hundreds of people watching bets and Griffiths is fighting this and he's so skillful. he's defeating much bigger, much older opponents all the time. He didn't fear anyone. In one evening he fights four men, one after the other, grown men, he's 15, and he drinks beer between each fight and still wins. <laughs> I was going to say between each round. <laughs> so he fights four grown men in a row and he's drinking through the whole thing. He knocks them all out. And that's a typical night. That's just a normal night for that's him. incredible. Like doing it all the time. So then he finally ends up at the Iron Pot with Larry Foley and he starts to be called Young Griffo at this stage yeah. as his boxing sort of name. He notices he's impossible to hit. People try and hit him in the boxing ring and yes. they just cannot connect because, you know, fighting bare knuckle, you learn to you learn to dodge, yeah, <laughs> especially right. when you know that the rounds are going to go for about hundred and sixty odds, right? So he <laughs> was just perfect. He'd move his shoulders a little bit, move his head slightly, the yeah. smallest movement, but he just made people look like a bit like Muhammad Ali later on. Did he just made people look absolutely stupid? Floyd Mayweather, he's big best defense in boxing. Yeah, you, you just, just can't, you just yeah. couldn't ever connect with him. And amazingly, though, what Griffo did, which a lot of those other boxers didn't do, never moved his feet. He was on like a handkerchief-sized bit of turf and it was all in the shoulders, wow. the waist and the head and he could just always make people miss. So he gets better and better. Larry's teaching him, one former gang leader teaching another <laughs> gang leader and he suddenly becomes this amazing professional and it's a rapid rise. In 1889 he fought this guy called Nipper Peaks for the Australian featherweight title and so in front of a crowd of about 1,000 people at the Apollo Hall in Melbourne, he wins on points in eight rounds and he gets the Australian title. Eight rounds. That's over quickly. Yeah, fast. I was hoping it went to 160. <laughs> he then defends it several times and then he fights, and this is what makes his name, 1890, he fights a guy called the world featherweight champion of the world. His name is Torpedo Bill Murphy. Okay. He fights him in Sydney. Murphy's a New Zealander who's fought in America and won the world championship in America and then he's coming back to New Zealand on with to come home with the title, stops in, and he was known for his deadly torpedo punch. <laughs> What's the torpedo punch? <laughs> it's just his normal punch, it's but like it's like, it's like, like yeah. He won, right, all right. It's like the Coming cartoon. all the way from Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen to this. He won the world title in the California Athletic Club in San Francisco against a guy, American, called Ike Weir. Now, Weir had dominated the match. Right, okay. He's building the living daylights out of him. Until the 14th round, when confident of victory, Weir does, to excite the crowd, a backflip. <laughs> This turned out to be a bit of a tactical mistake because <laughs> Murphy waits for him to land after the backflip and then just clobs him <laughs> right in the button with the torpedo punch, knocks him out, which just reminds you don't do backflips. It's been a bit of showboating. There's a time and a place for that and it's not in a boxing ring with <laughs> no. someone who wants to kill you. So Murphy comes back and they say, do you want to fight the young Australian champion? And he thinks, yeah, fine, I can beat him. And so the bouts recognise the world title fight by the British and the Australians but not the Americans because it's okay. not in America because right. they're of Americans. Yeah. So they say no, although late years later it's recognised an official world champion fight. Murphy had this massive power advantage and in the first three rounds he knocks Griffo down three times. But Griffo just keeps getting up and then suddenly Griffo starts to get into it and he starts making Murphy miss every punch. Murphy yep. suddenly can't punch him. And suddenly then Griffo lands the right on Murphy in round 15 and the New Zealanders out. He's gone. He's won. Wait a check, please. Yeah, so suddenly this is the leader of the most notorious street gang in Sydney is the world champion of boxing. Brilliant. Barely 18. 
This, of course, is the last time organised crime and boxing have crossed over. <laughs> yes, you'd never believe it today. <laughs> wow. And so just to finish off on the the gangs in Sydney, the Rocks pushed, their reign ended in 1900, so just after Griffo Lane. Can I ask why or how or...? Well, the conditions in the area of the Rocks are so bad that the bubonic plague breaks out. <laughs> This is 1900, not medieval times. Oh so literally God. the bubonic plague breaks out. Put into all their shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, in Sydney. So the government decides. I'm, I'm getting a flu shot this <laughs> afternoon. I know. People can block <laughs> COVID lockdowns were bad. Yeah, like, you know how people complain about government interference during the recent yes. pandemic? So listen to what the government does. <laughs> the government who's left the rocks is like they won't even send police yeah. into there normally. Once the bubonic plague breaks out amongst it because it's so filthy enough. and dirty and there's opium dens and everything, they think, okay, now we have to do something about it because it's spreading <laughs> the plague across Sydney. We better, because it's basically a, you know, it's like a, a shanty town, right? Yeah, it's a, it's so they decide we just we have to knock down the whole suburb and just start again. Like it's the only way we're going <laughs> to stop the bubonic plague breaking out. The guy that decides to set up a business to demolish all these buildings is Larry Foley, who ran one of the gangs that made it. He's happy again. So yeah, and He's, so he he makes millions more dollars with the, with the government on the back of the bubonic plague. <laughs> so when you're happy as Larry. He's like, a piece of plague, man. Yeah, he makes heaps of money. So Griffo then, it's 1892, Griffo's world champion. He decides he's done everything he can do in Australia in boxing, yep. you know, and in gang warfare, and <laughs> he decides it's time for me to go to the United States. And he was a bit nervous because he's just a, he's he's a pretty simple kid. Yeah, and he's a simple kid from Sydney, no education. Yeah. God, idea going to America is very, very big. And, you know, it's it's hard to leave the plague nurturing no, safety right. of the, the Sydney slums. And what's a trip to America? Like in the, in a, we're on a boat, obviously. We're on a boat. It's a huge long sea voyage. So to give you an idea, he set sail yeah. in, this is in uh, 1892. He lasts five minutes into the sea voyage in the harbour, he dives out. He dives out of the boat and swims back to shore. (laughs) So so that's his first attempt to go to America. What is wrong with He just like freaks out and literally jumps off. The boat's five minutes from the pier. The journey or he doesn't like it? Everything overwhelms him. Everything overwhelms him. He's like, what am I doing? So he then decides next year, 1893, I'll I'll try and go and he stays on board this time and makes it to the States. And he lands in Chicago, which is, um, unlike Sydney, it's never had problems with crime. (laughs) Chicago. (laughs) Never an organised crime issue in Chicago. So he's brand new to this country and they set him up for a fight. And his first fight's the 3rd of November, 1893, against a, a boxer known as Young Scotty. And Griffo was just so confident of his skill that yes. early in the match he challenged young Scotty to try and hit him. And Griffo said, I won't punch back. So <laughs> for several minutes, Scotty tries to hit him and doesn't he hit him once. Punch. Can't even hit him. And this is with Griffo not throwing a punch. Mm. Then Griffo starts throwing punches and wins the fight. And he, the American crowd just amazed at how good he is. That he so this can't is their first hit. look at young There's Griffo. There's the first time they've seen him. It was around this time that the American boxing media started to notice that Griffo had some irregular training habits. What do you mean? So this is he had none. He never trained. <laughs> he never tried anything. That is amazing. He hated training. The difference is, like most people, he hates training. Yes. But the difference is he's a world-class boxer. So, like, not until Nick Kyrgios as an Australian skated through so much just on pure <laughs> talent. Not only did he hate training, though, he loved drinking. 
Okay. Like loved it. So stories began emerging in the American press that he prepared for fights by just drinking all the night before without going to sleep. <laughs> and one newspaper reported that from his bout against young Scotty, his first fight in America, he had to be located and removed from a bar right before the fight. <laughs> <laughs> You're on. They, someone had to go f- drag him out of a pub that he'd been at Fantastic. the whole night yeah. to the fight the next and then drag him out and take him. It's a perfect preparation. And he still wins. Wow. He easily. He easily wins. Nat Fleischer is the founder and editor of the uh, the Ring magazine. So this is the most influential yep. and boxing thing ever. He said... He never was one to take his professional career seriously. Training was a nuisance to him and he preferred hanging around bar rooms and guzzling his liquor. Seldom, indeed, was Griffo sober for a fight, yet so amazing clever was he that regardless of his physical and mental condition at the moment, he invariably held his own or could and did whip his opponent. Wow. So he never fought sober <laughs> his whole career. <laughs> I know a couple of guys like that. (laughs) This is incredible. And that was, even at the time, that wasn't typical. That was not typical of everyone. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, they were all, he he was whipped. So he established himself as one of the best boxers in the United States. But his love of this carousing, this being up all night, it started to overwhelm him. He was hopeless of money. He'd often need to earn cash for booze when he was in the pub. So he would just randomly challenge bar patrons to try and hit him in the face. (laughs) That's a way to earn a dollar. <laughs> so he'd just go up and say, if you can hit me in the face, yeah, I'll give you $10. If you can't, you give me $10. And oh. that's how we would make money for drinking because he would just spend it the minute he got yeah. it. It Really, you might be sensing Griffo's an alcoholic. He's uh, almost cannish. <laughs> young Griffo. Where he really started to go off the rails was when he moved to the United States and made it big okay. because – of his reputation, the newspapers all started to love him. So they took to him. So America the Americans loved, loved him. Yeah. Like so, he's this amazing boxer, but he drinks and carouses. He's a, so when he turned up, he no one knew. Who no was, one knew. But who he was. quickly established he qui- himself. He's quickly as, like, and there are all these reports of him being in bars and shouting bars and <laughs> challenging people to hit him and all this, this stuff. This is all in the papers. So he says the problem is though, because of this reputation of being a boozer. Yes. Every single person wants to have a drink have with, a him. with him. So they're all shouting him. Tell me about and it. And <laughs> yeah, you, you can relate. <laughs> and, and his thing is he could never say no. So in one instance before a fight uh, against a guy called Jimmy Dime, which is a cracking Jimmy name. Dime. All the boxing oh names God. is the best. Even like, so his name is Jimmy Dime. So he's about to fight and they're looking for him. He's found in a hotel room, passed out and surrounded by empty champagne bottles. <laughs> so that's the scene they find him before the fight. Yeah. They wake him up. And take him straight to the fight. They don't like call straight off the fight in. or anything. And he walks in and just wins the fight. Unbelievable. Goes back to the bar. Has another bottle of champagne. Has another one. Um, so a lot of people are trying to take advantage of him and they're just saying that it's completely impossible, the people that are trying to look after him, to get this guy on the straight and narrow, right? Because <laughs> he's just so a loose cannon. Yeah. Um, all these trainers, a former trainer, Tim McGrath, said he had a complete lack of ambition. That was the other thing about him, right? He didn't really care about. Well, he just needed enough money to drink. To that was all drink. he cared about. Yeah. As long as he had enough money to go get a drink, yeah. he didn't care. And then he said, "Glory and money meant little to him. He loved his good times, and it was impossible to get him into condition. No manager ever did. He never took a fight seriously, and was never in condition for one that I know of." <laughs> So anyway, his his life's spinning out of control. His boxing career was going well. The American press start calling him the Australian Willow the Wisp because he cannot be hit. He's like a cyclone, you know, he cannot be touched. And 
all this stuff about his drinking just keeps adding to it and keeps adding to it. He would also announce before a fight in what round he would knock his opponent out a <laughs> hundred years before Muhammad <laughs> Ali did it. Unbelievable. So, you know, he's he's playing to the media. Round he's 161. <laughs> That's I the will take him down. It might be around two million, but I'm going to take so him out. So he would out. do this before the fight or during the before fight? Before the or? fight. In the lead up, he'd say, I'm going to knock this guy out in the sixth round or the 80th and round invariably and he inevitably would do it. Because these guys fought all the time. They yeah. would fight like once a week. They wouldn't fight like now yeah. where it's, you know, they were always fighting. So in January 1894, he fought the future world featherweight champion Solly Smith to a draw. In March the same year, he took on Ike Weir, who was the man torpedo Bill Murphy hit after doing a backflip. <laughs> He fought him and said in front of 5,000 people at the uh, 2nd Regiment Armoury in Chicago. Okay. And um, once again, Griffo's completely drunk and he knocks Weir down twice in the third round and the newspaper The Inter-Ocean described the fight as three of the fastest, fiercest and most brutal rounds ever fought in an American prize ring. Wow. This is why Griffo's drunk. Yeah. He's just After the fight ended, uh, it actually ended in a draw because the police stopped the fight because it was sort of semi-illegal, um, but Griffo <laughs> was awarded it afterwards. Yeah. Not long in fact, Weir retired from boxing because Griffo was so good yeah. and belted him so much. Um, he's completely undefeated at this point. I was going to ask, he has not lost. He's not lost. This so, is and this is an amazing fact, right? This is how much they fought. Depending on who you believe and the counting, I've looked at all the sources, but roughly he's... Is currently undefeated after either somewhere between 115 matches and 174. <laughs> so he's not like, you know, 10 wow. and 0. He's like yeah. possibly 174 and 0 because they just fought absolutely all the time. There was no, you know. Yep. Um, in August that year at the Seaside Athletic Club in Brooklyn, Griffo faced a legend of the boxing ring. This is a guy called Jack, the Napoleon of the prize ring, McAuliffe. Jack McAuliffe. <laughs> it's scheduled for 10 round. And McAuliffe is one of the all-time great boxers. And he came out hard against Griffo at the start, but Albert just keeps – and this guy is like – the, the best boxer pretty much in the world at the time. He comes out really hard, tries to knock Griffo out, can't hit him at all. And then eventually Griffo knocks him down in the sixth round. McAuliffe then manages to get up and they continue on. At the final bell, all in attendance agree that Griffo won, except for a guy called Maxwell Moore, who's a very close friend of McAuliffe's, who <laughs> happens also to be the referee. Well done, Boxy. So the re- he awards McAuliffe the winner, says what? you're the winner. because he's And this creates a riot and McAuliffe has to escape with the riot, the crowd trying to kill him for doing this. After the fight, Moore said he'd erred in counting the points and that Griffo should have won, but it was too late. It had been recorded officially. So his first loss. So this is his first ever loss. And even then... There's an asterisk next to There's an asterisk next to it. So despite all this, Griffo's like a superstar in America and back in Australia. Promoters are looking at making money for him and they're all trying to take money off him because he never pays any attention to money and he spends it immediately as he goes. So he's very easy to, right. bit like Mike Tyson, Don <laughs> King, right? Just history repeats and repeats and repeats. Yeah, yeah. Between 1894 and 1895, he takes on world featherweight and bantamweight champion George Dixon, who's one of the great boxers in three epic bouts. Dixon's a black Canadian boxer, later named by the ring as the greatest featherweight of all time. Okay. He's born in Nova Scotia, Dixon, and he's the first black boxer to hold a world champion belt. And this is back when that really mattered. When he beat a white boxer for the championship, a 
white crowd rioted for about five hours afterwards. <laughs> Didn't take it well. <laughs> they did not. Now we're so used to a yeah, black yeah, boxer yeah. beating a white boxer, no one even knows. <laughs> right. But it used to actually get people upset. Um, Dixon invented scientific boxing, so that's studying your opponent, being very worked. He yeah. also trained extensively. He was he invented shadow boxing. Okay, so there you go. Um, he was fit as. Griffo, meanwhile, his alternative training regime was late nights, heavy drinking and more heavy drinking. <laughs> so you couldn't have two. I'm in the Griffo camp. Yeah. yeah. Very, so you got Griffo who's drinking every night, never done any physical exercise. The other guy's at home shadow boxing. The other guy's shadow boxing, running laps, skipping rope, wow. doing all like what you'd expect. He's as, and if you see pictures of this guy, he's as fit as they come. Looks good. Griffo has a paunch. <laughs> <laughs> this is the difference. That's, right. that's why Griffo never shadow boxed. <laughs> His shadow is just not great. It's not, it's, it's not a good shadow to watch. Anyway, they fight three times. In every one, it ends up a draw. Griffo against the best boxer in the world and the fittest and most trained is it. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle described the first fight as a battle that bristled throughout with glittering skill and generalship. The Washington Post described their second fight as an encounter between two boys who certainly never been excelled and probably never equaled. So these are wow, these one of the great go. fights of all times. The 25 rounds is the second fight. Ooh. One of the reasons he's able to do so well is to get him in shape. His manager at the time organised for him to be jailed before the bout. I beg your pardon? <laughs> he organised for him mean? to be sent to jail on trumped-up charges so he had to he's, sober he's up. framed him. Sent him to jail so, so he, would he sober could up. be in that was the way of getting him yeah. in the best nick for a fight. Yeah. He's got him wow. locked up and so he's locked up and he can't drink and can't disappear. And they know they, where he is. So You're in jail. The day yeah, or they just the let him. Yeah, or? the authorities like, oh, you, can we let him out now? He's got to go fight. And they're like, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so he goes and fights. And what, lock him up again? Does he <laughs> well, have to go think, back? Or? Well, he gets locked up a lot later. <laughs> So this is his thing. So I, so that's oh, how they geez. get him. To, this is the only time he's ever fought sober, yeah. one time, and uh, it's because he's been in jail. How'd he go? He went well. This is where he fights George Dixon to three fights, all draws. These are the two best boxers. And Griffo is, of course, except for the second fight, the other two he's drunk. Yeah. Middle one he's as best he is. <laughs> George Dixon, who's this fit guy, invents Sharon Boxing, he succumbs to alcoholism later on, which is because <laughs> these guys fight hundreds of fights and get hit in the head a lot. So yeah. it happens to all of them. Less than a month after this, Griffo then takes on a guy called Joe Gans, who's an African-American and he's in his hometown of Baltimore. And Gans goes on to be rated the greatest lightweight boxer of all time. And there's a bronze statue of him currently at Madison Square Garden. So right, this is how good yeah. boxer he is. And Billy Joel, I believe. <laughs> Madison Square Garden. Who also young Griffo fought. Uh, <laughs> Griffo manages to fight him to a draw as well. So he's yep. not necessarily knocking them all out, but he's they can't get him. They fought again in 1897, but a lot happens in these next two years. Here we go. By 1896, the wheels are starting to really come off for Griffo outside the ring. He can still win, but he, he's going to He's drinking at a casino on Long Island, which he <laughs> frequently regularly, and a few drinks had become a lot, and then he assaulted a town official, William Connors, resulting in his arrest. Now, they release him because he's got a fight. <laughs> He's not meant to be released, but he goes, I've got a fight, and, they, and the authorities go. Are they all fit? They all go, oh, okay. Young Griffo. You can Let go. Which he subsequently lost okay. because he's obviously started starting to get to him he's all of this. He's too sober. He's too he's locked sober. up. Two months later, he's arrested again, this time for driving intoxicated and behaving in a disorderly manner. 
The judge decided 25 days in prison would sort it. Now, okay. It didn't. It didn't. <laughs> he already had another court date by the time he was in jail for that one for assaulting an assault he'd committed on an 11-year-old boy in Brooklyn. So he's not going well at this point. <laughs> Jesus. This time they decide... You've hit a kid, not a kid he knew. It wasn't no, his kid or anything. Some kind of random, just random street, street, street kid. Yeah, he's back to his street phone name, and they sent him to a year in in prison. And so they thought, well, that's enough. Now, after Pony's release, he spends a year in prison. You'd think after hitting a kid, he'd be cancelled in the modern world. <laughs> Even that back then, it was frowned upon. <laughs> he gets out, and all the promoters swing back immediately because he's just so popular with the public and worth so much money. They go, let's have yeah. him. They uh, start setting him stuff up and he started to be a bit physical, but he dried out over the year in there. And so he managed a 15-round draw with Joe Gans, which is a, a, another draw, one of the best, and seen as a classic. And he's suddenly getting a bit better. But he's now in this thing where he go has a fight and then he's just life goes off the rails till the next fight. So a month after the Gans fight, he's arrested in St. Louis for vagrancy after several nights of drinking without right. going home. Once again, he's released from jail for a fight. So he basically has a, has a, has a, he has a fight, <laughs> goes and gets drunk on a bender, ends up in jail. jail. Released to fight. And the jail where he should be in jail for like, you know, months, they end it early every time because he's, so he's got a fight. They go, like literally his lawyers go, oh, he's got a fight. And the judge goes, well, gentlemen, why, judge didn't, releases <laughs> him early. why did you not say so earlier? <laughs> they put him out. Wow. So he keeps fighting. He keeps doing all this, but he's it's starting to get to him. He's drunk every time. He's saying, "How old is he at this stage? What are we talking?" Oh, he's about? getting into his sort of. A, he's still in his twenties, right? That's pretty old for the time. Old for the thought. time. In one fight, though, against a guy called Tom Tracy, he's so drunk and he's not going well. In the first round, he lies down on the ground and rolls out under the bottom rope and then just walks away. <laughs> Because that's enough. And the judge, the, the, fights, the fight's judged no contest. Yeah. It emerges, though, that the reason he does that is on the way to the fight, the car Griffo's travelling in has been cleaned up by a streetcar and he's injured his shoulder in the crash. But he decides, I'll still go and fight after being in like a car accident. He just turns up. Now, in 1898, Griffo fights a guy called Joseph Devitt who went by the name Bull McCarthy. Okay. Completely irrelevant to his real name. Yep. The fight's the third time they've fought each other. His, Griffo's won all the others and it's not much of a challenge for Griffo. In the 20th round, Griffo wins by knockout. He goes down, doesn't get up. Goes to the hospital, this Bull McCarthy, dies later that night. Griffo is beside himself. He handles it well by drinking himself absolutely As you silly. Do. And then he's taken into custody on charges of manslaughter. But the bail hearing in the media wrote up that Griffo at the bail hearing was helplessly intoxicated. And the judge ruled the death was not malicious and that McCarthy's death was the result of an accident in a friendly contest. But Griffo mentally never recovers okay. from this, right? Yeah. He just he decides he doesn't like boxing. He's, he's over the whole thing. But he has to keep fighting to fund his drinking. So a few months later, Griffo's found running naked down a major street in Chicago. Jesus Christ. And when he's arrested, he assaults the three police officers as they arrest him wow. while he's naked. This is the best story ever. Young Griffo. His relationship with the Chicago police was already strained because he's obviously <laughs> been getting in a lot of things. A few months earlier, he tussled with an officer who was throwing his mate out of a pub at two in the morning. And he's brought before the court and one officer testified to finding Griffo in a saloon, jumping over tables, talking to himself and fighting imaginary foes. 
He is shadow boxing. At the detention uh, hospital when he was being held, he began every morning by shouting a list of names. They'd ask him who, what the names were and he'd say, they're a name of horses at the track, Griffo would say, I win money on them. So the doctors at the hospital declared him insane and put him in the Chicago uh, asylum. But they would still release him to fight uh, from well, the asylum? the judge then sentences him for further time in the asylum and when the sentence is read out, Griffo attacks the judge. <laughs> I approach the bench. Boogada, boogada, boogada. <laughs> this is insane. Yeah. So Griffo at this point, he's in the Cook County Insane Asylum in Dunning, Chicago. It's yeah. 1899. It houses a thousand people, this asylum. Yeah. So this is back in the days where if you were not right in the head in, in their way, way in, in their perceived way. Soft. Or poor. If you were oh, poor, okay. like you were homeless. They that just threw everyone. Qualify. They just would throw everyone into the asylum and go. There, there you, you go. go. You like- and I don't think they were doing lots of um, sort of remedial therapies. therapies. <laughs> I think it was just like, let's keep you off the streets, basically. Yeah. So if you're drunk or if you're deemed insane or you're poor, you would go in the, this, this asylum. And he's, um, he's qualified in a couple of areas. He's, he's there on it all. Yeah. yeah, he's ticking every box. The boxing world, though, they're not forgotten about him because they're like, this is like Mike Tyson of the era, yeah. right? This is this guy's worth box office money. Yeah. So a boxing manager by the name of George Dawson visits Griffo. And he's surprised to find that he's quite coherent in this insane asylum. And Griffo says to him, to Dawson, for heaven's sake, get me out of here. I'm not crazy, but I will be if I'm kept here much longer with this mob of lunatics. So he's saying, get me out. So he moves heaven and earth and pulls in every favour politically he can. And in 1900, Dawson manages to get the state to agree to release Griffo, provided Dawson pays $3,000, which is a lot of money in 1900, as indemnity against any damage he might do in the community. (laughs) What he might, in case he gets out of line. Yes, it's like they literally say, you know, the odds are... Kiss that 3,000, goodbye, I would have thought. Well, Dawson then says, well... I'll set up these series of exhibition fights for you, you know, to get some money, get back on your feet, I'll look after you, I'll calm you down. So they choose <laughs> opponents who are good but not Griffo yeah, can yeah, win, yeah. right? So these are sort of exhibition matches. And suddenly Griffo's sober, hasn't drunk for a long time, been in the sales asylum, and he suddenly shows again he's one of the best boxers in the world. He's back. And boxing venues around the country, they're just throwing money to get yeah. him to come, right? So lucrative that even... The boxers at this point who are holding all the championship belts, all the heavyweight champions of the world, can't make the money Griffo's making. He's making more money. Yeah. Finally, he gets another go against Joe Gans, who's one of the greatest of all time. Even though the alcohol, it's caught up with Griffo and he goes down the eight round. But despite this, he's still so popular that all Dawson's his new manager's arranging $10,000 worth of exhibition fights after this coming up and all just turn up, do it. John Whitback, who's a Chicago restaurateur and friend of Dawson, described the fight as not hard matches but easy exhibitions with a sparring partner and guaranteeing purses ranging from $300 to $1,000. And Dawson's keeping a close eye. You know, he's a bit nervous because he's stumped up all this money. <laughs> he's got three grand on So he lot. takes him everywhere with him, like to yeah. polite society events and keep him away from booze and all this. Good Lord. Griffo doesn't really like this. <laughs> he finds this yeah, somewhat tedious. boring and tedious. One night before this string of $10,000 worth of fights are about to kick off and they're about to do a tour across the States, Griffo bumps into a mate who says, why don't you just have one glass of sherry? <laughs> oh, Jesus. What could go wrong? Griffo has one glass. Griffo has the glass of sherry and disappears. <laughs> 
and they can't do any of the fights. They just completely disappear. It's like Sherry. they don't know where he is. One glass of sherry. One glass. Years later, Whitback, who's the friend of Dawson's, recounted how some full friend of Griffo's insisted <laughs> on him taking glass of sherry and it was all off. All the sporting fraternity knows how he went to pieces and how Dawson, in disgust, had to cancel all the $10,000 worth of engagements. No pugilist, aside from a heavyweight champion, had such an opportunity to reap such a golden harvest. Those $10,000 engagements were only the beginning. If he had kept sober, Griffo could have virtually coined money for two or three years to Very come. Very expensive sherry. Very. It's like some... a $10,000 sherry. Probably the most expensive sherry in the history Indeed. of the world, actually. Dawson's done all this. He's heartbroken. Like, he got him out of the asylum. He lay, like, he's he making money. the groundwork. Up. The gravy train is leaving the station. So it's partly gravy train. It's also Dawson's, like, this lover of boxing. Yeah. He's a promoter. but And he loves Griffo. Yeah. Like, Griffo okay. is charismatic, once-in-a-lifetime generational talent. Yep. And he, he's gutted. Dawson's heartbroken and doesn't really comment. So Whitback, who's his friend, tells says to the media... And this is a few years later. He says, young Griffo is a degenerate of the worst type. <laughs> it is imp- absolutely impossible to keep him in respectable condition. Given $500 tonight, it will be broke tomorrow. And no inducement, not even the guarantee of $10,000 for 20 minutes work with gloves would make him forgo <laughs> a drinking bout with the lowest of the Levy characters. You mentioned earlier that Ned Kelly was in the audience. We've made eight films on Ned Kelly. Could we make a film, please, in this it's, country about young Griffo? It's just... This, you know, Eric Banner or someone yeah, to play young Griffo. How it's not, it's amazing. Unbelievable. So Dawson's left, given up. Griffo finally emerges again, keeps fighting, but less lucrative butts because he's just trying to all... Yeah. Anyone who says, do you want to come fight? He continues getting in trouble. In September 1901, he's arrested for armed robbery and he serves time in the Bridewell oh, Prison Farm in Chicago. He escapes from the prison. Okay. Has he assaulted a judge or anyone? No, he escapes from the prison but is found in a nearby vacant lot freezing and his hands are so cold that there's a real fear he's going to lose them to frostbite. (laughs) Over the next few years he's sent to either the Cook County and Sale Asylum or Prison Farm for a variety of just minor charges like, you know, vagrancy and fighting and all this sort of stuff. And in between these stints in prison he'd come out, do another fight, get some money, blow it up. Go back to jail. prison. Um, he's, a, he's told by a doctor that he should retire from boxing due to a vulvular affection of the heart that may bring death to him in the ring at any time. Okay. Griffo ignores this advice. <laughs> he's fighting on and off. He's still managed to mix it with some of the top fighters though. So even yeah. though like he's still going okay but he's not winning like he was. But the years of alcohol, hard living, he's often out on the street. Yeah. He's fought more than 200 fights. He's cooked. He's cooked and it's same to toe In 1904 in Chicago, Griffo had his last ever fight. He squared up against Tommy White. Um, it's soon obvious to all the onlookers watching this fight that, that at done. 33, Griffo is done. Put a fork in him. The same realisation comes over Griffo before the first round's even over. He simply gives up, steps through the ropes, leaves the ring and never fights again. And the curtain comes down curtain. on one of the most storied boxing careers. So this is the of end of this. Time. So this is literally one of those. Now he's no longer able to box. He bounces around asylums and poor houses. He's got no money whatsoever. Mm. So like other boxers of that era made a lot of money. He could have been one of the like Larry Foley's bought the pub and the you know he could have yeah, made yeah, yeah. so I mean, much happy money. as Larry. He could have been happy as Larry. He spent most of the last 15 years of his life outside the New York's Rialto Theatre on Broadway, where the wife of a former opponent allowed him to beg. 
Friends would try and organise benefits for him, but it's too hard to just find where he was. And relatives in Australia tried to have him arrested several times to save him from himself and get off the booze, but people couldn't but find him. But he's still him. in America. He's in New York. But friends back in Australia would contact authorities and to say... To get him arrested and locked up. On the 7th of December, 927, he's found dead in the boarding house he was staying at at New York's west side and he'd passed away from heart disease at the age of 56. He's got no descendants and so a local boxing promoter organises the funeral which is attended by all these, the who's who of the boxing community. In America? In America. So he never comes home? Never comes home, buried in the Bronx. The question is how good was he? So newspapers across the United States and Australia, they run articles about Griffo's death for all the contemporaries at the time, there's no doubt that he's just an amazing boxer. Yeah. It's hard to know the exact thing, but they, it appears that he fought 232 official fights and lost nine. <laughs> um, and you got to remember a lot of them went for 20, 30, oh, 40 rounds. So it's like, you know. Yeah. Uh, Ring Magazine founder Nat Fleischer said again, Griffo was the greatest ever boxer I've seen in over 50 years of watching fights and fighters. The highest praise came from the boxer, the old master, Joe Gans, who'd fought three times. He said in his first fight, Gans said, I trained for three weeks for the bout. And when I got a flash at Griffo in his corner, I noticed that a fold of fat wobbled over his belt. He was in fit condition for a sanatorium instead of a prize (laughs) ring. You would naturally think that a man in his condition would steer away from a punch, but he crowded me from the first tap of the gong. He clearly outboxed me. It's a pity that a boxer of his talent never took care of himself as he was the greatest defensive boxer that ever lived. Unbelievable. What a story. It's amazing. Can I tell you something? His instinct to jump off that boat five minutes in, we could have avoided all of this. I reckon part of him knew what he was heading towards because that is an epic tale of woe, joy, of uh, it's a masterpiece of fucking nut. Nutty behaviour. Well, well, when you think of it, like he's to me, he's the prototype, both in Australia and internationally, of the sporting person who is so good. He's forgiven no matter what he does. All his weaknesses. All his weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, this is what drives me mad about our country. We weren't talking about it, but like we literally do make nine Ned Kelly movies. Yeah. Surely there are great stories out there. Why is Young Griffo not? A household name, or why hasn't there been a Bradman style? Uh, well, you know the thing too is when you or, think about it, it's Crocodile Dundee before Crocodile <laughs> Dundee. It it's this sort of babe in the woods goes to America, it goes to the everyone big time, loves him. He's amazing, sauce, runs amok, yeah, leads him a merry dance. <laughs> it has all the big ones, but it's a tragic tale as well. But it just keeps getting more ridiculous as it goes on. Well, I'm glad he did it because. <laughs> I mean, that's a good story. Yeah, and if you Google him, every boxing thing, he's in the top defensive boxer all time. And they, so he's not some like sideline. He is a true genius. And you got to remember, he fought about once or twice sober. We've got to bring him home. Do you think we should do it unofficially? Let's <laughs> <laughs> go and dig him up. <laughs> bring him home. Weekend at Bernie Store. Well, that is an epic story. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you for filling me in. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Young Griffo, one of my favourite stories. I just enjoyed researching that so much. Mick and I still talk about him all the time. Mick thinks he could play him in the movie. And, you know, they've got a lot of that de-aging technology now, so who knows. It's just coming out on Christmas Day, so why would you not be listening to this instead of talking to your family? I know that's what I'd prefer, but... 
Merry Christmas. Uh, we've got the new year coming up. We're going to be back soon, but if you're looking forward to more Sports Bazaar, can I just remind you of a Bazaar Plus membership program where you can sign up, you get a bonus episode every single week. And importantly, if you're currently wanting to listen to more, you can join up now and you get access to that whole back catalogue. But apart from that, young Griffo, what a legend, uh, one of the greatest of all time. I hope you enjoyed it.